U.S. is a little bit in the middle, and yeah, I think Australia is probably more the outlier here with the allowance of negative gearing without really any restrictions. You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 232 of Tax Talks. This is Heido Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Before we talk about US tax, I just wanted to give you a quick review of the tax summit last week at the ICC in Sydney. Here's an insert I recorded yesterday. Hello everyone, it is day three of the Tech Summit 2020 at the ICC in Sydney. Just one more session to go. My impression so far, very technical, addressing big and complicated tax issues, high profile with big names like Chris Jordan, Peter Costello and the Honorable Simon Stewart, a judge at the Federal Court. Quite a different feel to the SMSF conference a month ago. Different dress code, only three stands, MYB, Receipt Bank and Assage. No handouts of beach bags and water bottles. And different people too. A lot of professionals from ASX-listed companies, large companies, mid-tier to top-tier accounting firms, and no financial advisors. So a very corporate feel. I attended some really good sessions, which I will tell you about tomorrow. So one more session to go. I'm heading into the workshop about trade wars with gamification around the trade war. Will be interesting. See you shortly. Welcome back. The day after the Tech Summit, it is Saturday the 14th of March 2020. Three highlights from the summit. Highlight number one. Chris Jordan, Commissioner of Taxation, spoke on day two and announced the high wealth tax gap. And this is a first, not just in Australia, but worldwide. It is the first time in human history that a country has revealed its high wealth tax gap. And so this gap is the tax high wealth individuals and groups didn't pay but should have. And you fall into this high wealth category when your group has a net wealth of 50 million or more and you own at least 40% of it, meaning 20 million. At about a net wealth of 20 million, you start dabbling in high wealth territory. And there are about 9,000 individuals and 18,000 companies making up 5,000 high wealth groups in Australia. The ATO statistics are based on the tax year 2017, so from the 1st of July 2016 to 30th of June 2017. And according to these statistics, 90% of high wealth private groups paid their tax voluntarily or with little intervention from the ATO. They paid $9 billion in income tax and employed 780,000 people. So it was only 10% of this group that caused the ATO any grief. And the ATO estimates the tax gap for these high wealth groups, so for the 10% who didn't voluntarily pay their tax, the ATO estimates this tax gap to be around 7.7% or $770 million, which is a big number. But if you put it into the scheme of things, it is not bad. Of course, it could be better, but it is not bad. And the great thing is that the ATO is publishing this. Highlight number two, my second highlight was the speech by Peter Costello, Australia's longest serving treasurer. His main message was basically, if you want tax reform, don't wait for bipartisan support. Don't wait for the opposition to back you. You just have to do it yourself. Tax reform has almost never been a bipartisan effort in Australia. The introduction of the GST in 2000, for example, happened despite the opposition, according to Peter Costello, not together with them. So don't wait for the opposition if you want to get anything done. A quote, an ideal tax system is efficient, simple, has low compliance cost, which of course we all agree with. And Peter also stated about achieving an efficient and simple tax system. He said that tax is not the principal weapon for delivering equality in the system. And running the equality argument when talking about tax usually doesn't make for good tax design which I think we all agree with as well. But then he also said something I'm not so sure about. He said that we will never see tax reform as big as the GST again, partly 
because we can't do anything as big again. And I'm not sure about that. Never is a big word. Never say never. Anything is a big word as well. Of course, we will see another big tax reform. And of course, we will achieve something as big again. The question is just when, <laughs> unless, of course, civilization comes to an end before that. If Corona brings a few more siblings along and puts an end to all of us, and in that case, of course, Peter would have been right. My third highlight was Bob Deutsch's speech. Bob is still fairly confident that something will happen to the CGT discount in the near future, not under the current government, because they can't, because of their election promises, but soon. Because the difference between the tax on income and the tax on capital is just too big at the moment. And he's also fairly confident that something will happen to franking credit refunds and not a complete wipeout as Labour basically had suggested, but a cap of some sorts, for example, 10,000. Not confident at all that the taxation of discretionary trusts or negative gearing will change in the next decade. But in addition to these predictions... Bob made six suggestions for reform. The first one is to limit the top marginal rate for individuals to 40%. So have a top marginal rate of 40%. The second one is to abolish FPT, as you know, just 1% of tax revenue. The third one is to get rid of the Medicare levy and to just include it in the general tax rate because that is how it is treated anyway. Number four, limit the corporate tax rate to 25% for all, just as Robin Jacobson had suggested in the panel discussion. Another highlight, by the way. Number five, widen the GST and include food and education in the tax base. And number six, and this one is probably the boldest, abolish imputation and adopt the Singapore model of taxing the company and then have the dividends tax-free to shareholders. I think this is a great idea, even though, of course, SMSFs, etc. won't like it. So these were my three highlights. And the trade war game was very interesting as well. We pretended to be an Australian retailer with 80% of stock sourced in China. You can see where that went. But it was great. A lot of fun. And my team won on brand points. So a great end to a great conference. I had been really keen to hear Angela Myers of Ryan talk about technology in the text practice. That was the title of her speech, Technology in the Text Practice, because I was keen on that, because that is a big topic, I think. But unfortunately, she was sick. Talking about sickness, the tech summit was probably one of the last conferences we see for the next few months, given that all public gatherings are now banned and a lot more is probably coming our way. So this conference was probably the last train to leave the station before lockup. So that was a short review of the tax summit. Let's now look at US tax for individuals. As you know, Australian residents are assessed on their worldwide income. And as you also might know, the US treats their citizens and green card holders as residents for tax purposes even if they don't live in the US, even if they have never lived in the US. And so most of the over 100,000 US citizens and green card holders living in Australia are tax residents in Australia because they live here, but are also tax residents in the US because they have a US passport or green card. And so they are taxed on their worldwide income in both countries, Australia and the US. And so in this episode, in fact, in all three episodes this week, we will shed some more light on the interplay between these two. Because your US clients will probably give you their US tax return. And so then the question is, how do you incorporate all this information on the US tax return into the Australian tax return you prepare? So today, we start with the general overview of the US tax system for individuals, putting the more complicated taxation of companies, especially LLCs, limited liability companies, aside. Tomorrow, we look at the differences between the US and Australia. What do you need to look out for when you jump from one tax return to the other? Again, sticking to individuals and only touching briefly on companies and trusts. And then on Wednesday, we will walk through the actual U.S. tax return for individuals, the Form 1040. So that is the plan for this week. Seth Hertz is a tax director with Expat U.S. Tax in Sydney, 
and a US American who has over 21 years of experience preparing US and Australian tax returns for US citizens and green card holders living in Australia. So Seth is an expert when it comes to understanding the differences and nuances between the two tax jurisdictions. Here's Seth. Who has to prepare a US tax return? Everybody or only people who have accessible income over a certain threshold? So, I mean, to start with, the, the biggest thing you always have to start with is residency. And is someone a U.S. tax resident or not? And when you're dealing with that, then a U.S. tax resident is any U.S. citizen, any U.S. green card holder, and others who meet what's called the substantial presence test in the U.S., which is based on days of presence in the U.S. And that's Aussie outbounds to the U.S. that we're looking at mainly there. So citizen and green card holders are always counted as a resident. Whether Correct. they are actually living in the U.S. or not, doesn't correct. matter. They're always treated as a resident. Absolutely correct. And so if you're dealing with a resident of the U.S., then yeah, you are dealing with minimum income thresholds before you have to file a return. Those thresholds vary per year. They go up um, based on the uh, cost of living index. But I think it's around 10,000 US dollars. It's about 12,000 for someone who is either single or what's called head of household. Yes, sorry. It is about 12,000 for a single. The standard deduction for a single is about $12,000. And the standard deduction for a head of household is about 18,000. So halfway between single and married filing jointly. Or if they're married filing jointly with their spouse, it's even, it's, then it's 24,000 or it's a little bit higher than that now for 2019 and 2020. However, you can be a situation where you have a very, very low threshold if you're married to, let's say, if you're a US person and you're married to an Aussie who's not affiliated with the US and therefore you might be filing a separate return under the status of married filing separate then the, the threshold for filing a return can be as low as $5 of income. Oh, I see. So when you are married, but your spouse is not a U.S. citizen, doesn't have a green card, doesn't qualify under the substantial presence test, hence has nothing to do with the U.S. tax system. If your spouse is like this, you don't actually file as a single, as an individual, you file as married filing filing separately. Yeah, the U.S. has makes things okay. fairly difficult. And the best way to think about it is if you're single, if you're not married, then you are single. And that is, that is for sure. If you are married, there's actually three different possible filing status that you could have depending on... Yes, married filing separately, married filing jointly, and head of household. Correct. And head of household, you have to have U.S. citizen dependents that are living with you before you can start exploring that one. So if you're dealing with someone who's just married to a, to an Australian and doesn't have any children, for example. Or the children are from a previous marriage and don't have U.S. citizenship. Correct. Then you'd only be looking at two possible filing status options, which would be married filing joint and married filing separate. I see. For head of household, you must have children. Well, you must have dependents, which most often are going to be children. Yes. And those dependents must be residents. Yeah. They must be U.S. tax residents and they must have social security numbers, U.S. social security numbers. The U.S. focuses on what your marital status is on the last day of the U.S. calendar year. You could be married on that last day and then for the therefore for the year you're considered to be married. If you divorced on the 30th of December, you'd be considered to be single for that year. Citizens and green card holders are always residents and hence always have to lodge a tax return unless the income is below these minimum thresholds. And then anybody who passes the substantial presence test also has to prepare a tax return. A resident tax return, or at least part year resident, that's right. Yes. And can you just give me a quick idea of what the substantial presence test looks like? Now, the substantial presence test basically says it's under a part of the section of the U.S. tax code, which says how someone's defined as a resident of the U.S. And when you leave aside the people who are citizens and green card holders, it focuses on people who meet the substantial presence test. And the substantial presence test says that 
as long as you A, have more than 30 days in the year, and then B, if when you count the number of days of presence in that year and a third of the days of presence in the year before and one-sixth of the days of presence in two years before, add them all up, and if it hits 183 or above, you've met the substantial presence test. So 30 days in the present year. At least 30, yeah. At least 30. If you're in the present year less than 30, you're you can, out. You won't be. At least a third of the year before. So that's 365 divided by three, whatever that is. Well, no, as in that number of days. So if you were in, let's say, if you were in the U.S. for 90 days of the year before, you would multiply that by a third. And so the number you would use for the prior year would be 30. And then you would look at your days of presence in two years earlier. And let's say that was 30 days. Divide that by six. That equals five. And then you'd say, okay, five from two years ago, 30 from last year. And then the actual number in the current year, if you add that all up, does it get to 183? I see. Okay. I'm with you. So if in the current year you're in the US for 30 days or more, you got the first tick. In the subsequent year, whatever number of days you were here in the year before, I take a third of that. And then the year before, whatever number of days you were in the US, I take a sixth of that. And then I add it all up. And if it's more than 180 days, then... 183. Oh, 183 days. That's like, um, that's like Australia, isn't it? Don't we also have... 183 is a very, very common residency threshold for many countries. Oh, why um, is that? Because it's half the year, in essence. Oh, yes, of course. They figure that's a good enough uh, indication, yeah. right? There. I always wondered how they came up with 183 days. Pretty much. They just divided 365 by two and... And rounded it up. That's the best I can think of as far as uh, the origins of that number. Okay, so if you pass the substantial presence test, then you have to lodge an. Then you will be a resident of the U.S. for at least part of the year, and then you then have to look and see whether you have the, enough income to to file a return. That's right. So the first test is residence. The second test is then how much income you have to see whether you have to lodge. And if you tick both those boxes, then you have to prepare a U.S. tax return. Right. And that doesn't mean you have to pay U.S. tax. It just means that a return has to be prepared. Yes. And so if we're looking at the most common situation that we're looking at, which is the American coming out to Australia, most of them are coming out here and you know they're probably working in some way, shape, or form. They're probably going to have a requirement to file a U.S. tax return. They're going to be residents by definition because they're U.S. citizens. And then if they, you know, if they're earning an income, then it's likely that they'll get above either the twelve thousand or the twenty-four thousand threshold, or potentially even the five-dollar threshold. And at that stage, we know we have to do a U.S. tax return. Okay, three questions. The first one is, what is this five-dollar threshold? If someone is married, filing separate, okay, filing status, believe it or not, their threshold for filing a return is five dollars, okay. and that so started a couple a of years ago. Okay, so that means if you have a couple where the wife or the husband is a U.S. citizen and the other spouse is Australian, then this U.S. citizen has to file basically no matter what their income. If their chosen filing status or if their available filing status is married filing separate, that's yes. And sometimes there are other filing status available in that scenario and so that's How could why they be because they're married hence they have to they are married they don't have children in uh, if they don't have children then yes the only poss other possibility is that you can elect to have the non-resident spouse be treated as a resident of the US that is possible is this about the alien the non-resident alien Correct. Because that, wait, I was going to ask you about that. What, what's the story about the, the alien? The US, the, the U.S. has some terminology, which is, uh, which is amusing. Uh, yeah, amusing at best, uh, that's for sure. So in that scenario, yes, you have a U.S. citizen comes out and, and marries someone who has no affiliation with the U.S. That spouse is known as a non-resident alien. And sure, it can be a situation where that's the case, that spouse never takes on U.S. green card or U.S. citizenship and they remain non-resident. There is an election possible in that situation, if it made sense to do so, to say that that spouse, non-resident alien spouse, can elect to be treated as a resident of the U.S. 
And then you and then, could choose then you could marry jointly, jointly. And hence, and so it would make sense when your non-resident alien spouse has no income, but the other spouse has a very high income, then filing jointly or even filing as head of household would allow you to basically get an average of both. You have lower U.S. tax rates. That is correct. What I will tell you before we go too far down this uh, this rabbit hole is that the vast majority of clients that we have who come to Australia and marry a an non-resident alien, we don't end up filing a joint return. Because it them. just doesn't work it's, as well. Well, it's just it's more along the lines of it doesn't change the outcome too much in the U.S. Yes. Um, because the uh, the way and we'll get into this, I know, but the Australian tax rates are still quite a bit higher than the U.S. tax rates. And when you're dealing with income that's going to be taxed in in both countries, then as long as you're dealing with Australia being higher, then even if you have a somewhat higher U.S. rate than under married filing separate than you do for joint you might still end up with nil tax in the U.S. Because you have such high foreign tax credits. That's right. And if you've got that situation, then, then why you, you look at it and saying, why are we going to bring in the spouse's income and, and everything else and go through the administration of doing that? It's a more expensive return. It takes more effort to put it together. And so most people say, not worth it. So most married couples where only one spouse is a U.S. citizen, most U.S. citizens in that scenario would file as married filing separately. Correct. Or head of household if that's available. So just to quickly come back to this terminology of alien, you can have a non-resident alien and you can have a resident alien. Correct. Those are non-resident aliens. That's right. Because as soon as you pass the substantial presence rule, you're no longer an alien. Well, you're no longer a non-resident alien. You're going oh, to be a resident can, alien. I see. So when you don't have, when you're not a citizen and you don't have a green card holder, you're always an alien. In essence, the, the word alien, and that's the somewhat offensive term that, uh, that gets used, in essence, just refers to someone who's not a U.S citizen. The question then becomes, is that alien resident of the U.S. or is that alien non-resident of the U.S.? If they don't meet any of the tests, including having a green card, then they're a non-resident alien. If they do meet any of the tests, then they're going to be a resident alien for at least part of the year. Oh, I see. So even the green card holder is an alien. Is a resident alien, yes. Oh, okay. you have an Australian, so an alien, who is a non-resident, would they still have to file a tax return in the US if they have US sourced income? Or would withholding taxes take care of that? It depends on the situation and the type of income and what they've set up ahead of time with it. Ideally, you can certainly have a situation where, you know, the classic one would be an Australian who buys shares you know, in the in U.S. companies, if they have the right forms in place, then withholding tax can be taken out for any dividends that come from those shares. And if that's all you're dealing with, yes, you do have U.S. source income, but you wouldn't have to file a U.S. tax return if that withholding has taken place. That would be a, certainly one very common scenario that happens. Other scenarios that can happen is, you know, you can have Australians, though, who, um, let's say, invest in the U.S., they might buy property in the U.S., then you're going to have to file a tax return. There's no withholding that's going to take care of that. You've got to report all the income and deduct the expenses. So now we have established who has to lodge a tax return. So now the next question is what goes into this tax return? Mm -hmm. And I think for anybody who is a resident, be it a resident citizen or a resident alien, for anybody, it's worldwide income. Yeah, if you're a resident of the U.S. for any portion of the year, including the entire year, for that portion of the year, you are required to report all of your income on a worldwide basis. And that's that's similar to an Australian tax resident, and it's similar to many countries who are tax residents. They have that same requirement. And I don't think there would be any proratering going on because for citizens and green card holders, it's the full year anyway because there's no question of presence. And for the substantial presence test... Substantial presence test typically will end up with what we call a part-year resident. You know, And so the classic example being an Australian moves to the U.S., let's say the beginning of April, right, 1st of April, 
and therefore they've been in the U.S. and they let's say they stay in the U.S. throughout the rest of the year. Well, from the first of April to the thirty-first of December, that's well more than one hundred and eighty-three days. They meet the substantial presence test. It doesn't make them a resident from the first of January till the thirty-first of March, though. It means they're a resident from the first of April onwards. So that's where we call that a part-year resident, or the technical term is dual status resident. Okay, so that means most resident aliens would only lodge a tax return for part of the year in their first year of residency. Yeah, I mean there are sometimes some scenarios. unless they arrive on the first of January. What they arrive on the first of January? There are some scenarios uh, when you have, especially married couples heading into the U.S. That sometimes we look to to see if we can treat them as full-year residents because there might be some tax savings to achieve. And that's planning that can be done at that particular stage. But if you're looking for the default scenario, you're looking first to see, is the substantial presence test met? So coming back, we have established who has to lodge a tax return. And also we have established that anybody who has to lodge a U.S. tax return is basically taxed on their worldwide income. Correct. Does that even apply if you live in Australia, you're a non-resident alien, but you have, for example, a rental property in the U.S.? Would you then still have to include your worldwide income? No. If you're a non-resident alien then, and there's a requirement to file a U.S. return, what you are including in the U.S. return is only, only US, U.S. source or... income at that stage. And sometimes it depends on the source income. So if we go back to that scenario that we talked about before, where it was just shares in U.S. companies, those produce U.S. source dividends, but you might not have to file a return if the withholding tax has taken place. So now we come to the filing status. We already touched on the filing status. And the filing status is interesting because in Australia, we only have one filing status for individuals. So that's very simple. But you actually have five. You have you a single, you have married filing jointly, you have married filing separately, head of household, and qualifying widow or widower. That is, let me just quickly count it, one, two, three, four, five. You have five Correct. filing statuses. Correct. Yeah, the U.S. doesn't pass up any opportunity to complicate things, that is for sure. But it's also planning that can be involved in that as well, and that's as we've touched on. I actually think this filing status is very generous because it allows families with young children where one spouse is not working to average their salary. In Australia, when you have a husband who, let's say, earns $250,000 a year and a wife who earns nothing because she's looking after young children, then the husband is hit with full marginal tax rates. Whereas if we had this fi married filing jointly in Australia, they would only have 125000 each and hence would be in a lower tax rate. So this married filing jointly is actually very generous. It's an interesting one. Yeah, and when you do that comparison, that is, that is correct. It's funny when you go through from a U.S. point of view, one of the topics of conversation that's always there is what's called the marriage penalty. And it's because when you factor things together like uh, tax-free thresholds and exemptions, which have been pulled away in the last couple of years and everything, the comparison that comes up is what happens when you have two spouses who are working or prior to them becoming married, you had two single people working, paying taxes, then they get married. Most of the time in that scenario, married filing jointly is going to be far better than married filing separately. And so they elect to file jointly, but their combined tax filing jointly is still more than it was when they were each filing as a single filing status. Oh, really? Why is that? Just the way the, the rates and thresholds work, um, the way they've designed it. And so you'll, you might see people talk about the marriage penalty. It applies more for people who are living in the U.S. as opposed to Americans living in Australia because it becomes less relevant at that stage. But um, it, is, it is something that more people will talk about that. They won't focus on the fact of... You know, people who have one spouse who's earning a lot of income and one who's not, because you're right, in that scenario, married filing jointly is a really good answer. The interesting thing is that children actually appear on the parent's tax return, but I think only if you choose head of household. No, they even appear on the individual tax return. If you're a single mother, for example, they appear on your 
individual tax return and you receive a tax credit for each child. There used to be deductions that are called exemptions. That was in place up until the end of 2017. In 2018 onwards, they changed it to tax credit. They had a tax credit for children uh, that were there before. The difference is that actually that tax credit can end up being refundable going forward with 2018, where it typically was much harder to get that um, in the years prior to 2018. But they've removed the deduction that used to be okay. there. But for that, the child tax credit is now refundable. It can be, yeah, depending on the situation. It is, as usual, There's, it can't just sit there and make a black and white blanket statement. There's always a, it depends. And so that's some of the planning that we end up doing for individuals coming to Australia is to look and say, is there a way that we can try and get some actual refunds from your children through the use of the additional child tax credit that people you might not have been able to get previously? But it's still very child-friendly. In Australia, there is no support of families unless you are under a very specific threshold. I mean, Correct. of course, there is support of families in other ways, but there's no support of families through the tax system. Correct. So that is very family-friendly. Correct. I think it's... A, the U.S. tax system at, at its base, you know, the rates are actually reasonably low. I think most Americans don't necessarily realize that that's the case compared to many other countries around the world. Because your top marginal tax rate, I think, is 30% or something? 37%. 37%, which is still very, very low in comparison to our, our 45. That's right. And it cuts in at a much, much higher level than the top rate in Australia. Because you have the standard deduction of 12,000 U.S. dollars. Filing jointly twenty four thousand US Correct. dollars is that's the main. Cutting. That's the main one that gets used, and that's that's as of the last couple of years, that's uh, been at that type of level. It's a generous standard deduction. Australia has a tax free threshold, yeah, which, which operates is basically the, the same, same way. System, yeah. The amount is lower, and um, when you really when you look at the tax rates, I think coming back to that again. So for, if we're looking at people who are either single or married, filing jointly, or head of household. The top rate of 37% doesn't kick in until the tax rate is at least around 500,000, 600,000 US dollars. And that's a very, very high threshold to yes. need to have. Well, in Australia, you get your 45% rate kicks in when you have income above 180,000. So the difference is, is very, very stark when it comes to that. And so when you have people who are on a higher income, they're paying way more in Australian taxes than they do in the US. Except if you live in a high-tax state. So, for example, Texas doesn't have any state taxes. So then, yes, you pay a lot less than you pay in Australia. But if you live in a high-tax state in the U.S., could you then come closer to Australia? Yeah, you do come closer. Um, New York and California are the two highest ones uh, that normally people focus on with that. The real question then is, okay, are you actually then also still a resident of Australia if you're living in New York or California. I, you know, I, I meant more just comparing the two tax systems. Yeah, the U.S. will start closing that tax rate gap when the, you realize that there's multiple levels of tax in the U.S. As you just federal, mentioned, you do have federal tax, state. you have state tax. In New York, you could have New York City tax if you're living in, in the five boroughs of New York City. And plus, you've got Social Security and Medicare tax which comes into play as well. So you can have five levels of withholding. And when people move to the U.S. and go on to a U.S. payroll, that's one of the first things they notice is they look and they can't understand what's going on and why there's all this withholding. It might still be lower than what they had withheld from POIG withholding in Australia, but it doesn't feel that way when you see it happening in five different spots. Yes, it feels more... Just coming back to the um, tax-free threshold, the tax-free threshold in Australia is eighteen thousand two hundred. Yeah. In the US, it's twelve thousand US dollars. It's not called a tax-free threshold, but a standard deduction. But that would roughly be equal, wouldn't it? How much is twelve thousand US dollars in Australian dollars? Under current exchange rates, you'd probably be looking at around uh, sixteen, seventeen thousand Australian for the twelve thousand. But if you're dealing, so yeah, it's probably not too dissimilar. a tax return married filing jointly or as head of household, does the tax return still list the income separately for each individual? And I'm asking that now with respect to then preparing the Australian tax return. If you're given a married filing jointly tax return and it doesn't list income 
separately for each spouse, then it can become very complicated preparing the Australian tax return. If you look at the form itself, so if you look at the 1040, the form 1040, it will not delineate between the spouses. But it would be very unusual to have a U.S. tax return prepared for that situation where you don't have backup statements. And on the backup statements, you would you would almost certainly see the delineation between the taxpayer and the spouse. Good. So you can separate. You just have to go to the backup statements. Correct. So we've prepared the tax returns, the U.S. tax returns. I think all tax returns, looking at due dates for payments and lodgement, mm -hmm. I think lodgements are quite lenient, especially when you are living overseas, you get an automatic extension until June 15th and then possibly can extend to October 15th. But all tax is due on April 15th. And if you don't pay a rough estimate by then, you end up paying interest. Yeah, that's well summarized. The I mean, the US is on a calendar year, which is always the good place to start. So it's from the 1st of January to the 31st of December. And so that's the first problem that people run into when they come here is realizing that they've got two different tax years to deal with. But yeah, if you're dealing with the U.S. return, the, the first date that people typically focus on is the 15th of April. That's, um, that's the initial deadline. Now, if you are a U.S. tax resident who is, has moved their tax home, outside the U.S., meaning that they're gone from the U.S. for at least a year. Typically then, if they are in that situation by that April 15th due date, they will get an automatic two-month extension of time to file. They don't have to put in a form in order to get those two months. If they need to go further than the two months, meaning June 15th, or if you have an individual who needs an extension for April 15th and they can't get that automatic two months, there is a form that they can file automatically. And if, as long as you file it before the deadline, then you will get it to October 15th. Um, so it, it's a six-month extension from April, and it would be only four months if it's being done for the June 15th filers. But you are correct in that extends the time to file the return. Not to pay. Not to pay any taxes. People sometimes will make a payment with that extension and therefore try and make sure that they cut off interest. But to the extent that there are taxes owing with the return, then if it's, those taxes are not paid by the 15th of April, then there will be interest. So do most of your clients then make a rough estimate for April 15th? So will they ask you for a rough estimate in early April? It depends. The most clients who are living in Australia, they don't have a huge U.S. tax liability is what yeah. ends up happening. And so probably there's... You know, there's not a huge percentage that either want or need that extension calculation to be done. On the other hand, you have people who, Aussies who moved to the U.S., that might be something where they need an extension or want an extension calculation done. And there are some reasons why people, Americans who moved to Australia, might still have a bit of tax owing. And then it depends client by client about whether they want to get a calculation prepared or not. And when you say extension calculation, you mean the calculation of their likely tax liability so that they can pay by April 15th? Correct. The April 15th is quite tight. You know, when you think about in Australia, the tax year ends on the 30th of June. If you are registered with a tax agent, you have until the 30th of May to lodge and pay. I think the way to think about it is, I mean, if, if you're not using a tax agent in Australia, then the deadline's the 31st of October, which is four yes. months. In the U.S., it's three and a half months. So it's it's fairly on par when you think about it that way. The way to think about that, I think, is from a global perspective, the Australian concession that is used for lodgement deadlines being moved when you have a tax agent, that's unusual. I see. So very few countries do that. I haven't run into another one. Maybe that's also why we have such a high ratio of tax returns being lodged through an agent. Yeah. Because this way you can push out your tax liability payment by another seven months. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if you don't have to make a payment on your taxes that you owe, you finish the tax year on the 30th of June and you don't have to make, you lodge that return on the 15th of May in the following year and you might not have to pay the tax until sometime in June. You know, you've had a year, you know, to hold on to that money. That's, that's unusual. I see, yeah. It sounds very generous. I never realized that it was so generous, but when you compare to paying within three and a half months and starting to pay interest within three and a half months, then it 
suddenly feels very generous. It's certainly less generous when you compare the two countries, but I think the U.S. system is, is fairly, fairly typical on a global basis. Foreign Earned Income Exclusion, yes. F-E-I-E, yes. how do you refer to it? Do you usually say FIE or F-E-I-E or you say Foreign just, Earned just Income Exclusion? We just call it the exclusion. Okay, the exclusion and the with the capital T. We might, if we're writing it in an email or something, we might spell it out at the first time and then we just call it the exclusion because it's a tongue twister mouthful otherwise. Yes. And that exclusion, that plays a big role, of course, when you prepare US tax returns for your Australian clients. Well, for the Americans who are living in Australia. So yeah. let me maybe give some background around the exclusion. So the idea is that Americans who work abroad, obviously, oftentimes will be subject to tax in their local jurisdictions. And so one of the methods that the US has in place to try and minimize double taxation is the concept of an exclusion. And what the exclusion is says that if you're away from the US for at least a year, there's a couple of different ways to qualify, but it guaranteed you have to be overseas for at least a year, then it is possible that you will get that you can get an excluded amount of salary and wages. And that amount gets indexed every year for it's cost of living. And it's quite generous. I think it's 130,000 US dollars or so. It's a little over 100,000 for the foreign earned income exclusion. And what they add on to that as well is a foreign housing expenses exclusion as well, which then when you combine the two together, it can typically get around 130, 140 US for that point. And the idea being is that they say, right, if you have wages that are earned offshore up to that amount on an annual basis, then you can you put that into the return as a positive number, but then you get to show a negative number for the same amount. The caution with that exclusion is how the U.S. takes that negative and how they calculate it. Because I think you get hit with quite a lot more tax if you earn more than the exclusion. Most common term I've heard used to talk about it is it's called exemption with progression. I'll contrast it with how it used to be. Let's say you had that $100,000 exclusion and you earned $130,000 in wages. The way that that would normally work in the past, and this was up to about 2005, I think, from memory, is you would say, okay, 130 minus 100, that leaves you 30. And then what's the U.S. tax starting at the lowest graduated rates on the 30000 which would be fairly minimal. You would claim the standard deduction and then be in very low. That's right. What they do now, or since that legislation change, which was around, like I said, around 2005, is that instead of playing it that way, where you just take the exclusion off the top, what they do is they assume that the excluded wages... Was taxed in the U.S., not only does it say, okay, we have to take, we have to figure out the effective tax rate on all of the income first and then apply that effective rate on unexcluded income. But the exclusion is assumed to apply at the bottom of the tax bands first. It means that you're actually potentially getting a bump in the tax rate on excluded income. So that same 30,000 in what I just described, would now be taxed potentially even at a higher rate than if it had been the 30000 that was being taxed along with the 100000 that was being excluded. And for that reason, when we talk about an exclusion, most often what we find for individuals from the US who are in Australia is we actually look at the possibility of not using the foreign earned income exclusion at all. And instead, simply relying on foreign tax credits based on the Australian taxes that have been paid, because oftentimes that actually can give a better outcome. Oh, I see. Because if you apply the exclusion, you can't claim foreign tax credits. You can. You can claim foreign tax credits on income that has not been excluded. So going to that same example that I just did, the 30000 that's left over is going to be taxed in Australia, taxed in the US. Well, you don't want to end up with double tax. And so you look at the Australian tax on the 30,000 and compare it to the US tax on the 30,000. And the US will give a credit for whichever tax is lower, which still by and large is probably the US tax rate. 
But in the situation of, let's say you elect out of the exclusion and you don't use the exclusion, you would have a situation where you'd be looking at the Australian tax on 130000 and comparing it to the US tax on 130000 And oftentimes that total, you might end up with a zero US tax liability one way or the other, but the carry forward credits, meaning unused Australian tax credits might be higher using the second methodology rather than the first. And oftentimes that can come in handy down the line. I see. So you might still end up not paying any tax either way, but if you don't use the foreign earned income exclusion, you might receive higher income tax credits. Yeah, and one of the things that we do is, and most foreign, U, and most foreign US foreign tax credits. Correct. Most US taxpayers preparers, I should say, will run a bit, couple different scenarios and see which one ends up with the better answer. Um, I have two questions for you. One is to actually go back to the tax rate, and then the other one is regarding the foreign tax credits. The tax rates in the U.S., yep. does the U.S. have brackets like Australia? Yes, they do. Okay. The top bracket, as I said before, is 37% and it kicks in at a very, very high rate, that 37%. And then there are various levels along the way, starting from zero and making their way up to 37%. And then this foreign tax credit, you receive a foreign tax credit for any tax you pay in Australia that is equivalent to a tax in the US. But can you claim, can you use this foreign tax credit against US income? Meaning if you, you live in Australia, one day you go back, can you then use the foreign tax credits against US sourced income? No, the US doesn't allow a foreign tax credit against US source income. So it's only against income that's considered to have a foreign source. So if you have a scenario where a US citizen goes to Australia, lives and works there for 10 years, accumulates substantial foreign tax credits in the US, moves then back to the US, they will start paying tax from day one because they can't use any of these foreign tax credits. So the only time you can really use these foreign tax credits is if you then move into a low tax country, like for example, Dubai, or not that Dubai is a country, but United Arab Emirates or UAE, you move into a UAE, you don't pay any tax, hence you can then use the foreign tax credits you earned in Australia for that foreign sourced income. Yeah, you'd be looking at countries that have a lower tax rate than the US is really what you're dealing with. So sure, I mean, UAE would certainly be one of them. But other examples might be Hong Kong, Singapore. There's a few countries actually within Southeast Asia that fit the bill. And therefore, as long as you're dealing with that situation where the US rate is typically higher than that country's rate, then there's going to be a gap for which otherwise normally would mean that you'd have some US tax to pay every year. But if you've got those carry forward credits, foreign tax credits from the time in Australia, then the opportunity for using those credits, those carry forward credits would then, that opportunity would appear. I can imagine that will surprise many US citizens returning back to the US. They see these hundred, two hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of foreign tax credits in their tax return that are nicely carried forward each year. They go back to the US, they think they have these tax credits up their sleeve that will now save them from paying tax for the next five years and then it's all gone. Yeah, because what ends up happening is the carry so if we have foreign tax credits from let's say twenty nineteen, those are the returns that we're preparing now. What you have if you have excess credits, they carry forward for ten years. And so you get until oh, so they even expire anyway. They will expire. And then if they haven't been used by 2029, then they disappear. And They're so like frequent flyer points. Typical, yeah. Probably even harder to use sometimes than the frequent flyer points. Coming now at how income is actually taxed in the US. So to give you an example, in Australia, we have siloed capital gains and losses. You can only offset capital losses against capital gains. You can't offset capital losses against other income. Do you have something like that in the US? We do. The two most common silos, using your terminology, would be one, capital gains and losses. And that's correct. The only difference being that in the US, if you have lost capital losses that are not completely offset by capital gains and therefore you have carry forward losses... The U.S. does allow a very small amount of those losses to be used against ordinary income every oh, year. Right. If you're talking about someone who's single or married, filing jointly, or household, head of household, the amount is $3,000 $3, yes. per year. I remember that now. 
on some schedule, there's a line that says this amount or 3,000, whichever is lower. Correct. The rest get carried forward. So you don't lose them, but you're then looking at future years. And if you have some capital gains in future years, you can then use those losses. Yes. Oh, but that's good. I always wondered what this 3,000 was about. But of course, it's the capital loss that is carried over to other income. It's the amount that can be used is for that year. And yeah, it's that 3,000 amount has been in place for a long, long time. That's not yeah. in a subject to indexation for inflation. So um, it's, you know, it is what it is. The other category or silo, as you put it, that we see are what's called passive losses, which most frequently come about from rental properties. So basically negatively geared. Yeah. And that's the most frequent scenario that we see is we have somebody, you know, either have an Aussie who's gone to the U.S., and they've got some investment properties in Australia. It might even be their, their yeah, so main then residence. They can't negatively gear it in their U.S. tax return. It depends. If there, It depends how high their income is. There is some allowances for rental real estate in the U.S. where if you're below typically $100,000 U.S. of total income, then you can take that loss up to $25,000 per year. And so that works out. If you're above 100000 then you start losing that ability to deduct that 25,000 threshold until you get above 150, in which case it's lost completely. Now, when I say lost, I mean the ability to deduct in that year. The loss itself doesn't disappear and carries forward. forward. That's right. That's a common scenario that happens. So that means the loss is always there to offset it against rental income, but to offset it against other income is limited to 25k a year or less. Depending on, uh, and that's only for people who are on uh, incomes below $100,000 a year. So that means the US has a little bit of a hybrid negatively gearing situation. It's not all doors are open like in Australia where you Correct. can negatively gear as, as much as you like. And other countries don't have any negatively gearing. They have investment losses completely siloed. So the U.S. is kind of in the in the middle. The U.S. is a little bit in the middle. And I think the way you're phrasing it is quite correct in the sense that Australia is probably more the outlier here with the allowance of negative gearing without really any restrictions. Obviously, that was something that was brought up in the last federal election as a, as a possible change. And that's been discussed a number of times. And one of the reasons that I think that it keeps coming up is because Australia is a bit of an outlier in that respect. We might be the only country who has no limitation on negatively gearing. Not familiar enough with all countries to know, but it's certainly unusual. Welcome back. So there are three provisions that are to help your clients with U.S. tax while living in Australia. Foreign tax credits the foreign earned income exclusion, and the foreign housing exclusion. In the next episode, episode 233, Seth will talk about the differences between US and Australian tax. What do you need to look out for when you jump from one tax jurisdiction to the other? Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.